MIB Agents Osteobites webinar and podcast presents the latest in osteosarcoma treatment, research, innovation, and hope each week. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Laura Randall on sarcomatology, a transdisciplinary approach. Our panelists today include 2021 junior board member and gamer agent leader, Matt Allen, past junior board member, Ryan Kennington, Amy Woodcheck, a childhood cancer survivor and pediatric oncology physician's assistant. I'm your host, Ann Graham. Okay, so welcome to Osteobites, everybody. I hope you have your snack. Um, I brought a cappuccino and um, Nutter Butters. (laughs) Can't go wrong. Um, Dr. Laura Randall is with us today. He is talking about sarcomatology, a transdisciplinary approach. Dr. Randall is the chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at UC Davis. His clinical practice and research focus is on musculoskeletal, surgical oncology, and on building leading edge transdisciplinary teams to combat rare cancers of connective tissue in children and adults. He served as president of the Connective Tissue Oncology Society, the Musculoskeletal Tumor Society, the Association of Bone and Joint Surgeons, and leads the local control subcommittee of the bone for the Children's Oncology Group. Thanks, Anne. Hello, everyone. Um, It's a real privilege. Yes, my name's Laura Randall. I'm the chair of orthopedic surgery at UC Davis. I'm a sarcomatologist. I grew up on the East Coast and went out to California for my residency at UCSF and was up at the Fred Hutchinson University of Washington Combined Fellowship, and then spent 20-some years at Utah building out the program there with a great group that we developed and then moved over here to the West Coast on uh, two and a half years ago. It's really my uh, honor to be here, and I want to thank MIB and particular Anne for the opportunity. Hi, I'm Amy Wichek. I'm a physician assistant, mostly hematology, oncology for the last 10 years, and as Anne mentioned, also um, 30 six, almost seven year survivor of childhood cancer. And I have a very big passion for my osteo warriors and to make it better for all of them. Hi, my name is Ryan. I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma back in 2014 and the head of my right femur. I had a limb salvaging surgery. Um, However, unfortunately, a year after I finished treatment, I had one uh, metastasis lung nodule in my lungs and had that removed via that. But ever since then, I've been cancer-free, so almost five years now. Um, And currently, I am employed uh, at University of Utah and working in the Schiffman Lab. Uh, Hi, everyone. My name's Matthew Allen, and I'm a freshman student in college as of right now, and I began working with MIB on the Gamer Agents uh, about two years ago, and I've recently become a member of the junior board, and uh, my connection to osteosarcoma is my brother had it, and I'm just really excited to be here. So I'm going to give us a whirlwind tour, if you will, of uh, the philosophy behind sarcomatology, but it's really about team sports. I grew up playing lacrosse. It's one of my passions and um, it's about working together. No person, um, whether you're a patient or a provider or a researcher can do it alone. It's all about building teams to support oneself or move the needle in patient care, what have you. These are my disclosures with really no conflict for anything I'm gonna talk about. 
So who are we and what are we about over here in the, on the West Coast? So um, we're a nationally ranked orthopedic and cancer center and really uh, world leaders in biomedical engineering and veterinary medicine. I'm sure this audience appreciates that uh, canines, dogs also have problems with osteosarcoma. And so we see patients at the vet med um, with osteosarcoma and they are patients but they also afford us opportunity to do some really leading edge science as we try to treat them. Um, we have a pretty uh, robust sarcoma fellowship. I am gonna spend a few minutes talking about that because they really are, the, our trainees are the, really the driver for our, our innovation engine. And I think through my time at Utah and UC Davis, we've really worked to um, be collaborator, collaborators across the world in sarcoma. But we always, again, feel it's transdisciplinary in nature. And at the last part of this talk, I'll talk a little bit about the innovation that we're doing here at UC Davis, which is, I think, pretty distinct and unique. Our department has its own um, vision and mission, which I'm not going to read for the sake of time. But I think everything should be focused um, on vision and mission, um, whatever you're doing in your life. Um, and with that in mind, this is our sarcoma mission, which is to comprise compassionate, comprehensive, state-of-the-art transdisciplinary care of patients of all ages afflicted with benign and malignant neoplastic conditions involving mesenchymal tissues, which basically means connective tissue, the glue that holds us together. Our research is to understand the molecular pathogenesis to basic or mechanistic translational and population sciences research and develop novel and innovative therapies to improve cure rates and overall outcome for patients suffering with sarcomas and, and with particular attention to osteosarcoma. Personally, um, I have five values that I try to um, resonate with every day with my kids and my, um, my family in general, which is honesty, health, heart, hard work, and happiness. I particularly like the Olympic sign where I populate them with the five H's in my life because it reflects diversity and unity uh, together. Mission values, professional mission. I think we live in a very complex world. We need to be aware of it. You can't, uh, an issue can never be summed up in a tweet. We need to have dialogue around dealing with complexity and be ready to adapt to it. We need to approach everything we do with reliability, integrity, accountability. We need to treat each other with compassion and respect. It's a privileged stewardship. Uh, osteosarcoma patients are my heroes. So I've already given you one answer to, my, to, the, to the queries but we need cooperation and ethics in everything we do. And our department, you can see it on the bottom of our slides. It's even on our coffee cups. Everything our department does is based on compassion, integrity, stewardship, support, ethics, honesty, honesty and citizenry. We're one planet, we're one, we have to get along. So little, with that as a um, opening volley, we'll talk a little bit about our fellowship, which we started back in 2006 when I was in Utah and we've moved it here to UC Davis. We have one American, North American fellow and one international fellow um, with some research fellows in, in our In fact, our international fellow right now is a research fellow. Um, we have tw uh, a history of 26 fellows and most of them are in academics. And these are just some pictures. These are lifelong friendships of these people that have now gone out uh, throughout the world to, to carry on uh, the vision that we have for caring for patients with sarcoma and their dear friends that I care for tremendously. And we have lifelong friendships. So my partner there uh, right here, Steve Thorpe. We have the Ca Comprehensive Cancer Center. We have this uh, 
amazing hospital and ambulatory surgery center. And what's really it, it wonderful is that we are partnering with the Shriners Hospital of Northern California, which has now become the center of excellence for all of the shrines. And in fact, we are going to be doing our first sarcoma case at a shrine hospital in the country this, uh, this Monday, um, as we're broadening our portfolio to branch out our sarcoma program into the Shriners system. Um, and it's an exciting time in that front. We're also partnering with Reno. So we're moving uh, east from California to provide the sarcoma care for the greater Reno basin, which is uh, well over a million people. We have extensive uh, experience in compress, which some of you may know as, as patients. I was working with Jim Johnson at UCSF when this was sort of pioneered and, and short of memorial in UCSF, where we have the greatest experience with this device. We're not gonna spend any time talking about it, but those, I'm sure these radiographs look familiar to some of you already. Um, we are the pioneers of using this technology in transdermal amputees. We were the first uh, center to do so. We have done on a handful of patients where they actually have this now for an amputation where they can uh, hook up literally from their bone to their device. And we're gonna have a study coming forward. I'm not gonna spend any more time on this now, but we have a study uh, that's gonna come out in uh, four centers across the country uh, later this year using this device. We have a, a large experience with allografts. And this is just a typical case. Some of you are probably familiar with uh, some of these emerging technologies, but we, have, we consider ourselves a leader in this. This is a patient with an osteosarcoma of the tibia where we're able to do this uh, configuration planning where we are able to make our bony cuts in the virtual realm and then customize our implants. You can see here we fashion our cutting jigs to resect these tumors and then build, do our reconstructions. This is the allograph that we size and match from a bank to be able to literally fit in there. And you can see here is the, the cutting jig for the allograph so we can make precise cuts so that this jigsaw piece will then lock right into the, the bone because we've used the same cut on the native bone. And then we can just put this intercalate segment in there. It cuts, it cuts down a tremendous amount of operative time and therefore hopefully infection rates and costs and improved outcomes for patients. And this is the radiograph of, of one such case where we put that allograft in there. We do a lot of biologic reconstructions. This is a double rotation plasty where we actually make the knee into the hip and the ankle into the knee. This is a, a patient here and this is her radiograph. Um, people probably know the more conventional, conventional uh, rotation plasty where we make the knee out of the ankle, um, but we can also make the knee into the, oh, into the hip. Sorry, let me, uh, well, I guess it's fine to move forward. So, and then this is another procedure that we like to do. Uh, it's called claviculoprohumeri, where we actually, for an osteosarcoma of the proximal humerus, where we have to resect it in a, in a very young person, where we actually take the collarbone or the clavicle and swing it down on its blood supply and attach it here to the, the residual humerus bone to give them a solid reconstruction. The beauty of this in, in children, particularly less than 10 years of age, they now have a 100% biologic reconstruction that is biologically attached to the, to the shoulder girdle. So you don't have any uh, problems with it. And this was such an exciting technique. I didn't design the, I didn't um, plan the, use this tech. I did not design this technique, excuse me, but uh, it's something that we've made, 
do quite a, a bit of here. And it, uh, we published our initial results and we got it on the cover of clinical orthopedics and related research. And this is just a radiographic example of that where this is the collarbone from this five-year-old attached to their uh, distal humerus right here. There's the osteosynthesis site or junction site. And this grows, um, she ends up having a shortened arm, but it's, it's never needs revision once it's healed. And this is our team. This is a group of people um, all dedicated to sarcoma. There's uh, talent in all the, the domains that you're familiar with, with orthopedic surgery, but uh, as importantly, if not more, pediatric oncology, medical oncology, general surgical oncology, radiation therapy, allied providers, and then mechanistic scientists, social workers, et cetera. So that's a little overview of sort of the, the clinical experience going on. Uh, but what we'll talk here is a little bit about sarcomas and osteosarcoma in particular. The clinical scenario of a 19-year-old who presents, she's a rodeo rider in the Intermountain West. She presents with an osteosarcoma of the pelvis. You can see it here. She uh, gets a biopsy. It shows it's osteosarcoma. She, as everyone knows, will get MAP chemotherapy with local control with surgery uh, and then more chemotherapy for pelvic Ewings. It's not as good as with, appen uh, with appendicular osteosarcoma. And so prognosis is not particularly good, but we can do these custom implants. Other examples, this is Ewings. I know this is an osteosarcoma talk, but Ewings, uh, what you see here, the, the, the biopsy of Ewings, we'll do something called a single bone forearm for reconstruction. We would do this for an osteosarcoma as well. That's why I show it. Another example, again, of the distal femur where we do a rotation plasty. In this case, this is a more conventional rotation plasty where the native hip is in place, but the distal femur has to come out from osteosarcoma and we will attach the tibia to the femur for uh, making the ankle into the knee. And then lastly, again, the proximal humerus, I've sort of already alluded to this here where you can see osteosarcoma and we do this claviculoprohumeri where the collarbone becomes the upper arm bone. Now talking about um, sarcomas more from a biology standpoint, there's the osteosarcomas, which have a complex unbalanced karyotype. There's other types of sarcomas that we're studying that mimic this, that, um, but osteosarcoma is sort of the queen mother of that, if you will. And then there's these reciprocal translocation uh, sarcomas like Ewing sarcoma, synovial sarcoma, alveolar soft part sarcoma. My first couple of decades at Utah, I spent a lot of time, we were isolated, I was isolating a, uh, chimeric translocation uh, proteins from uh, patients when they had their tumor surgery or on their biopsies and we were able to harvest these and build these mouse uh, that they have a nice program there with Josh Schiffman and Kevin Jones and others that we started back and that was a really exciting time but we've moving to UC Davis we have started focusing more on the non-translocation tumors like osteosarcoma which is a real big focus and the reason the gravitation for that was again, this vet med um, school where we had a lot of patients, again, canine patients, but patients nonetheless with osteosarcoma that could help us with some of our enterprising research. And again, this is just that other type. We're not gonna spend any more time talking about Ewings or any of these translocation sarcomas, but I always wanna give a nod to them. So speaking of osteosarcoma, you know, we there's some brilliant minds. You've heard them speak in, in the past about their research, um, but it's really a very challenging disease. It's, it's the queen mother, as I call uh, osteosarcoma of molecular mayhem. 
There is karyotypic abnormalities, meaning the chromosomes are all quite aberrant. We know all about Josh Schiffman's work with P53 um, and why osteo osteosarcomas are not, or cancers are not really seen in elephants, et cetera. It's not as simple as a P53 defect, but we know that P53 is uh, aberrant in osteosarcoma, but it is not, the, it is not the necessarily the end-all be-all with it. And we really need to understand better the, the, the details around osteosarcoma genesis. So that's where, you know, we coined the term a couple decades ago, sarcomatology. Um, and I, as a surgeon, call it sort of biosurgery, but getting a real understanding takes a team of, of physicians and PhDs and uh, allied providers to really unlock the mysteries. We know that the conventional management of most sarcomas, surgeons are involved because we're the, the backbone for local control, if you will. Radiation is used in soft tissue sarcomas and Ewing's and, and chemotherapy is critical in osteosarcoma, Ewing's sarcoma, rhabdomyosarcoma, synovial sarcoma, and a few others. But we know that the, unfortunately we really plateau for patients without um, metastatic disease, but they have high, large aggressive tumors. The, the survival rates plateau at around 75%. And when you have metastatic disease, it is a real threat. And I'm just um, tickled to hear of Ryan's great story um, and all that he's doing um, with his give back to research. We need more people who are surviving their metastatic disease and it requires a team on that. That's why things like Children's Oncology Group and SARC are so critically important to get the tissues that we need to make sure that those tissues get the get funded to the best science and Quad W, I should have their, them up here. Quad W has been uh, paradigm setting in its, its ability to drive the issues of getting the, uh, addressing the issues, I should say, around tissue acquisition to get it to the best investigators around the country. So this is something that should be near and dear to everyone's heart. This is a, it's an opinion statement that Karen Albritton and I published way back, uh, almost 15 years ago, but I think it's really important. And it is the paradigm that if we're gonna get, make headway on sarcomas, and in particular osteosarcoma, we need to make sure that we're doing focused studies. It's more applicable to the argument of soft tissue sarcomas that we can't be lumping in liposarcomas and pleomorphic sarcomas and all of those into one group. We need to be looking at distinct entities to really drive the issues or drive the research, excuse me. In terms of doing the research, this is the, the classic uh, Hanrahan and Weinberg uh, model for all the different ways we can look at the, if you think of this as a, a cancer cell, these are all the different pathways that are involved and all the different molecular ways that we can study it. And it get, it, when you get into something like osteosarcoma, it really is, it, as it mute, it continues to mutate. It's not as if with osteosarcoma, you turn on a light switch, it's now an osteosarcoma and that genome and that biology is stable that biology continues to mutate throughout the course of the disease. And that the, the, the cancer that a, a patient is suffering with a year into the treatment may be different, is, is definitely different than the tumor that they started with. And that's really important to appreciate. This is just some um, trivia that I like to, to, people, to, to give to people to, to frame the, the question of why we get cancer it's really not why we get cancer, it's why we don't get cancer. How many cells in the human body? I'll give you the answer to that because this is a webinar, but it's a, it's a, it's a hundred trillion. 
there's 100 billion stars in the galaxy. So every one of us is walking around with more cells in the body than we have stars in the galaxy. So when you're out in that remote location looking at the Milky Way and beyond, put that into context about the complexity of your own body. And how many times, uh, by the time you get to be a uh, beyond middle-aged old fart like me, how many times have those cells reproduced? They've reproduced 100 million billion times. Do you know how big a number that is? That number, if you took all the stars in the galaxy and you multiplied that number by every single hamburger and hot dog that's ever been created, pardon my, pardon my metaphor to all the vegetarians out there, but uh, if you took every single hot dog that's at the ballpark and the backyard and hamburger and the, whatever forum that you flipped a burger or rolled a hot dog, took all of those that Homo sapien has consumed and multiplied it by 100 trillion, you don't begin to get to 100 million billion. And that's how many cell cycles you get in your life. And so it's, if you think about that, the fidelity of the system, you ask the London Philharmonic to play Beethoven's ninth, 100 million billion times, they're not gonna get it right. They're gonna mess it up. So to ask our cells to reproduce themselves 100 million billion times and not mess it up and not create a cancer is, is preposterous. And it, what it says is that the fidelity of the system is truly, truly remarkable that we don't have cancer more than we do. And that why, you know, the second law of thermodynamics informs us that, that everything is gonna lead towards entropy and chaos unless you constantly put energy into it. Look at our political atmosphere, right? Unless we put, unless we constantly reinvest in our political system, our political system will become chaotic. The same is true of biology. Biology requires energy to keep it in check, to keep the swimmer in the swim lane, to keep the, the car driver in the right lane requires continual attention, continual processing by the biology of the system to keep it from going crazy. And so I've got this very busy slide up here to, to just reflect that, that all of these things are stacked against us and yet somehow the majority of patients, the majority of people get it right. And this is just an example. When we measure things, I can, I can take a, a, a picture of the highway at one given day, but I can go back to that same highway at a different time and it can look entirely different. It, there's a congested traffic here. Here's the, the road driver who's plowing through another person because he's not paying attention and he's going too fast. When we go to measure those cells at any given time, they can look different from one point to another. As I've alluded to, the tumor is evolving. So any research while you're looking at a tumor now informs of, of what that tumor is doing at that moment. But that doesn't mean that that tumor down the road will be in the same place. So that sounds pretty depressing. Why study all this stuff? Well, sarcoma has more Nobel laureates uh, than anybody. We have some of the brightest minds. The whole cancer paradigm was put forward by Peyton Rouse and the Rouse sarcoma virus that was then characterized by Mike Bishop and Harold Varmus, who created the whole proto-oncogene theory. And then Mario Capecchi at, at Utah helped us build some of the first uh, knock-in mice in sarcoma. And so there's some really smart people studying sarcoma. So obviously, from a patient standpoint, it's worth doing it, but we're garnering some really bright minds uh, to help us figure this out. And this was just Mario. I had him out as our first lecturer at our uh, graduation of, for the orthopedics department this past, in 2019 before COVID. So getting into the science a little bit more, this is Kent Leach, who's my vice chair for research. 
we've put together this training grant um, across disciplines to start looking. It's called the Musculoskeletal Clinical uh, Learning Experience or Muscle Grant. We're getting the application in this year. Is something with uh, 20 unique ROIs, or excuse me, R01s uh, that were from across biomedical engineering, the vet med, College of Biologic Sciences, School of Medicine, you can see them. They're all federally funded investigators intertwined. They're not going to be looking exclusively at osteosarcoma, but it will be a major focus of what we're doing. And we have this external review board uh, to, to make sure that we're keeping on track of things. I'm going to get into the science in just a moment, but what we also have, and many of you are probably already familiar with this, we have an adolescence and young adult cancer care program. Uh, this is Simon who came out from the Teen Cancer America to help uh, give us our guitar and as we opened up our program. We know that AYAs are particularly vulnerable to osteosarcoma. It is an AYA cancer more or less. And so we have a full-fledged AYA program going. This audience already appreciates the, uh, the challenges with AYAs. They don't have the same outcomes as some of their pediatric counterparts for a variety of reasons because of socioeconomic as well as medical access um, and so AYA uh, focus is really important. And this is what we're doing. Um, we have a whole AYA panel of, of, for public health investigators. This is Brad Pollack, who's the chair of public health sciences. He's also um, does all of the, the uh, core grants for the COG. He's at UC Davis. And so we are building this AYA database with a focus on osteosarcoma patients. Um, and we're going after some uh, federal grants to help really get some robust data about how patients are doing with uh, AYA-related uh, outcomes in cancer. Getting into more of the molecular background of what we're, we're getting into, we are really interested in the metastatic process. Obviously, for the most part, we have local control of osteosarcoma and sarcomas taken care of. We'd like to, as I've alluded to, improve on some of the technologies so that we can keep our patients as functional as possible. But the nefarious part of osteosarcoma is the metastasis. So this, I'm just gonna talk about this briefly to set the stage for osteosarcoma. We have some mouse models in soft tissue sarcoma underway. One of my first recruits was Janai Carr Asher. She is a medical oncologist, this is her lab. And I, I have a student working with her, Monty, Monty Kila. She's looking at metastatic processes in soft tissue sarcoma. That was her interest when I recruited her, so I want to support her on that. But we will also be taking some of what I'm going to talk about here in soft tissue sarcoma uh, to osteosarcoma as we do some um, engineering work, which I'll get to in, the, in a few minutes. So this is a, a busy slide. Suffice it to say, this schematic here is the, the uh, cartoon of a, of a cancer We'll call it osteosarcoma, but this is soft tissue sarcoma that wants to spread. So it secretes factors, growth factors to enable the cancer to get into the bloodstream proactively, not passively, and, and move through the heart and lung and set up shop in the lung to form the lung metastases. So this is a photomicrograph right here of a spindle cell sarcoma. And then this is the lung metastasis. And Dr. Karasher has develop some beautiful modeling of this. I'm sure in some of your other talks, you've heard about technologies like this. This is patient-derived xenograft, so actual tumors from patients embedded into nude mice, and they're tagged with luciferase, and they metastasize to the lung. 
and we look at the RNA sequencing and the epigenetics, which is the way the, the genes are modified and the, and the proteins around them, we look at those and compare them back to the, to the primary tumor to see what the differences are between the metastasis and the primary. Again, the unfortunate person that develops an osteosarcoma up front, that tumor may not have metastatic potential, but then develops it. Maybe they develop it early and those is the problem. Maybe they develop it late, but what we really need to do is get more understanding of the metastasis. Most of the biology that we study is derived from the primary tumor. And that may not tell us what's going on in the lung because by then it may have evolved into something different. And so in, in these PDX models, we've got that tumor. And again, it's hopefully in a, in, in a research way evolving as it would in the patient so that we understand the biology here and we can look back then at the primary tumor. And so these are, the, these are the lung metastases that Dr. Carr Asher has been able to develop in these mice to then look back with molecular uh, characterization at the primary tumor. Monty, who's the student that we've hired, is taking the lungs and, and digesting them to sort the cells and build libraries of information to compare the different tumors. And again, this is in soft tissue sarcoma, but next up, and I'm gonna talk about our, I'm gonna switch gears to our osteosarcoma work here, but um, we're gonna be doing this with osteosarcoma as well. And we're gonna have a sarcoma fellow that's gonna dedicate his or her time to this. So now I'm switching that, so that, and, and what I've just described to you is the, is the classic paradigm for research in sarcoma of uh, mouse models, complicated, beautiful models to recapitulate the disease in patients we are, obviously have the canine patients in our vet med that we can also learn from as well. Um, but this is, we're switching now to a new area. And I, I just did a, a, an interview on um, Onc Live about this, how biomechanics, biomedical engineering can help us with some of these fundamental questions about metastogenesis. So this is one of our main focuses now that's, uh, again, is in its nascency, because I've only been here a couple of years, but we call it the top for the osteosarcoma project. So everyone here already understands what osteosarcoma is, but what we're caring about, this is, these are our um, murine models. These are the metastases that we care about. As an orthopedic surgeon, as an orthopedic oncologist, I very much care about the primary. I want all patients to be functional and happy with their limb salvage. It's very important, but intellectually and compassionate wise, what my real worry is, is the metastasis. And so we really wanna drill down on that. And there's a really a poor characterization of the tumor microenvironment, meaning not just the cancer, but the cancer environment in the, in the femur or wherever the origin, origin is, and then also wherever it metastasizes to, which is usually the lung, but wherever it goes to, whether it's other bony sites or liver, whatever, what's in that environment that allows that cell who's supposed to only survive in the bone matrix, able to survive in the lung. So what we've started doing is we've been engineering, and I'll talk about this um, in the next couple of slides, bone marrow, literally creating 
engineered bone marrow to mimic the microenvironment of, of the bone. And we have two cell lines, the K, K7M2s, which are the highly metastatic osteosarcoma cell lines, and the K12 uh, cell lines, which are less pro prone to metastasis. And we're embedding them in to these uh, artificial gels of, bio, of engineered bone marrow and looking at how these cells begin to migrate in, the, in their environment. And then we're gonna also see how they have the potential to spread to the lung. And so what we're doing right now is looking at the primary tumors in this model, these engineered matrices, which again, think of it like a little bone that we implant in a, in a mouse with the cancer cells in it. And we stress those, those mice with the oxygen tension and the microenvironment around them to see what happens to those cells. Do they start to express factors that make them more prone to metastasis or not? And one of the things that is most well studied is the, 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 the oxygen tension. When, when you can't breathe, you get kind of stressed, right? It's the same with the tumor. When a tumor it is well known that a tumor secretes vascoendothelial growth factor and other factors to get a rich blood supply to grow more and more. But if you start to starve the tumor, if it starts to grow, outstrip its blood supply, if it's growing bigger than its blood supply can handle, it starts to stress that's, and it gets decreased O2 tension. It's starving for oxygen. And that's, we think is potentially a survival mechanism to get it to mutate, to therefore want to metastasize, to go after the air, to come up to the surface, get somewhere where they can get more oxygen. There's a, evolutionary oncology is really um, taking a, coming into the fore. You know, this is cellular Darwinism. These cells are trying to survive just like the host is. They're not, they're not programmed to be evil, they're programmed to survive. And unfortunately their survival is at the expense of the host. So again, here, here's that model. We create these bone marrow elements, if you will, they're engineered. We introduce the cells and then we introduce macrophages. There's a growing body of literature about the role of macrophages in um, in, in the bone micro, the tumor microenvironment. And so we have the pure or with the macrophage that we start to study. We subject them to differing O2 concentrations, 5% versus 21%. We throw in this factor that's, that inhibits uh, metalloproteases, which allow cells to migrate a little bit more. Um, we don't need to get too into the granularity of that, but if we, we thought that maybe that would allow cells to migrate and we think migration is the first step of metastasis. And then we check them at day one and day seven. And this is a busy plot and don't let it intimidate you. What you're, what you're seeing here is basically 21% oxygen or 5% oxygen. And what you're seeing is for the, uh, that there's a bump up here in the 5% when you start to stress, stress the cells that they actually start to proliferate more than if you keep their oxygen at 21%. And this is true whether or not you have macrophages in there. That's what this is saying here. It's basically telling us that if you starve them of oxygen, these cells start to proliferate. DNA content just means that there's more DNA, which means the cells are reproducing. What's interesting though, is these metalloproteases didn't affect it. They basically had no, no bearing on whether or not these cells were proliferating. Still may be involved with the metastogenesis, but it isn't a driver for the cells to proliferate.
And this is true across whether or not you have the macrophages of these cell types in there. And this is something to, that is, is to appreciate to the untrained eye, that the cells start to look different based upon their microenvironment. So these are those cells, again, that are being starved of oxygen over time. And what you do start to see is those cells that have more macrophages in there do seem to look different and clump more than those that don't have the macrophages. So something about the macrophages in there is causing these cells to look and behave differently. So again, what we're trying to do here is to characterize what are these first steps? What is it about that osteosarcoma in that unfortunate patient's leg that is evolving and it's outstripping its blood supply and there's this immune response with macrophages, what is causing it to change to want to metastasize? And so this is uh, just take it at face value that this is, these are called M2 macrophages. Don't, we don't want to get too complicated here, but these macrophages have a, a, a kill function as part of the immune system or a heal function as part of, or a, a wound healing kind of function to help with injury. Um, and what it's showing is that these macrophages behave differently in these models, at this type of the M2, the healing macrophages behaves, behave differently and are less active in these osteosarcoma cell lines. And here again, we see the same thing that over time, these macrophages in this case this is metabolic activity is, is increasing. And so these macrophages are changing relative to the, to the oxygen tension and the progression of these tumors. So in, in summary, we know that oxygen affects the proliferation behavior of the osteosarcoma cells, that these macrophages are involved with proliferation and morphology, um, and that the, the, the types of macrophages influence the osteosarcoma behavior. And I know I'm going through this quickly and we can maybe take some questions about it. The next steps is to really, um, and that we're doing right now is to refine the engineered bone model to make it more clinically um, relevant. As I said, these are completely what we call in vitro. We've got these little discs and I'll show them to you, but we're gonna start implanting them in the mice. It's like putting a bone in the mouse um, as opposed to um, just, uh, in the soft tissue. So these are the, these are these literally these little bones that are engineered. They have all the right bone marrow elements that we have. And you can see what they look like grossly. They have all the different compositions of the bone marrow. They're little pellets like this. And this is just a image to show these little, so think of them again as little bones. They have all of what we need, cortex and, and the bone marrow elements. That's what they look like. This is what this is the microscopic images. I don't. I want to leave plenty of time for uh, questions, so I'll, I'm not going to spend time on this. But this basically shows they look architecturally like bone marrow, and then we put these little bone marrow elements or bones into the um, mouse. And so again, this is like implanting a osteosarcoma bone into a mouse, and then we're going to see how they metastasize like we sort of did with the soft tissue sarcomas, but with the soft tissue sarcomas, we literally just planted the tumor, the PDX in to the mouse. But what we have fear is if we take osteosarcoma cell lines and put them in the mouse just by themselves, you don't have that microenvironment of the osteosarcoma element. 
we've been able to show that, that it matters about the environment around them, the oxygen tension, the macrophages, everything. We want to put these little bones into the mice to be able to understand, uh, to give a better reproduction of what the tumor is like early on, and then look at it as it metastasizes. And then as it metastasizes, we'll be able to compare that to the signatures, all those signatures I alluded to before in the, in the engineered bone marrow. And I want to acknowledge that this is uh, Kent Leach and his lab, who he is my vice chair for research. And these are our partners in biomedical engineering and vet med. As I've said, we have uh, the number one vet med in the country, um, in the world actually. Um, and we see lots of osteosarcoma there. So we're really excited about this new emerging area of interest. And with that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop. I know I went through a lot. This is basically um, our innovation team. All these nine dots that you see are how we pro profile all of our research and where it fits into our schema. Um, and I just show this to illustrate a point. Um, I'm gonna, I wanna turn it over to questions and answers. So what are the pros and cons um, on upfront surgery for osteosarcoma in regards to like benefiting research? That's a great, great question, Ryan. Thanks for that. And I'll try to keep, I could go on and on and on about this one. So I'll try to keep it uh, limited, but we just recently had a think tank around this. You know, there's some, there are some, um, there is some data out there to show that maybe upfront resection is, is as good, if not better than the, uh, doing it after induction chemotherapy. Um, one of the advantages is you do get in concept the early early hit of getting all the tumor out up front and hoping that none of it have metastasized. Frankly, probably any tumor that's clinically detectable probably has hit the bloodstream in some form or another and whether or not it sets up shop is to be determined based on that biology of those metastases. Some of them may just get picked up by the immune system and you pee it out in your urine, but then others will set up shop. Um, so there's a real theoretical and uh, advantage to getting that tumor out up front. The, one of the social challenges with it is um, how, and especially in, in young people, is how best to get it out up front. Having taken out osteosarcoma up front, it is a harder operation than it is after it's been treated with chemotherapy. I use the analogy of a, a ripe tomato that if you get too close to is just going to explode on you um, if you don't have the sharpest of knives um, or compared to a sun-dried tomato. The chemotherapy definitely, even though it doesn't necessarily shrink the tumor, it definitely makes it much more um, safe to, to, to physically remove it because you don't worry about it uh, exploding on you. But um, the other aspect of it too is for those of you who have uh, experience this firsthand, having you or your family make the decision up front whether you want a rotation plasty or an endoprosthetic within a week of being presented with the diagnosis is a, is, a, is a tall order. If we knew for sure that I could say, if we do the surgery up front, it's definitely going to make you better. Now, figure out if you want to have your ankle put on backwards as your knee or have an endoprosthesis, we need to know now. That's that it's it, you can make the argument based upon the fact that well we know that it's the right thing to do to get the get the tumor out up front. It also, as you pointed out, if you do that, you do get the research tissue to study all of that primary tumor. 
But unfortunately, we don't know it. And so some families need that period of time to go through the process, start the treatment on the with the chemo, and then have the window to have really reached out to other people to talk about the pros and cons of different types of limb salvage, because they're going to be living. The goal is to have them live with that, live with that limb for the rest of their life, right? So they want to have some time to make the right decision for them. So from a social standpoint, there's that to be considered. Um, the last thing I also want to point out is we can study the primary till we're blue in the face um, and it's not going to give us the answers we need. So getting back to your question about research, having more upfront research of primary, I'm not sure is what we need. We can do bigger biopsies, um, but what we really need is the metastatic stuff um, or we need the resistance stuff. And so there can be an argument to be made from a research standpoint that when you resect the tumor and you've got 5% viable tumor, get that 5% viable tumor. Study that 5% viable tumor because in there lies the answer because it's those cells that have survived the chemotherapy up front that may unlock some of the answers. So I threw a lot into that answer. Um, so I apologize, but um, that's sort of an overview of I think what you were asking. Hi, Dr. Randall. Um, I just had kind of a two-part question about um, adolescents and young adults. The first part is, uh, do you share the uh, database for adolescents and young adults with uh, COG or any other institutions? And I'll let you answer that first before I give you the next one. Thank you. We absolutely will. So again, Brad Pollock and I um, are very involved with, and, and actually so is uh, Marcio Malgolwin, who's our peds on section chief. We're all very heavily involved with COG. The database is just coming online um, it, uh, and it will, it will definitely be um, made available to everyone. It'll be public information. Okay. And the second part is, uh, this might be a little bit of a complex one, but um. Why uh, are AYA like the most susceptible demographic for uh, osteosarcoma? That's a great question. And so um, lots of people have opinions on it. I'm sure you've talked to Andy Livingston and others, um, uh, thought leaders, Karen Albritton. There's lots of people who have theories around this. I think it's multifactorial. I think some of it has to do with societal constructs for healthcare. Um, Basically, in cancer care, it's either the over 40 population who get, you know, from a solid tumor standpoint, the big five, breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, kidney cancer, thyroid cancer, and then there's the pediatric population. AYAs have, for, have graduated from, from the peds care. They're often out on their own. They're either, you know, they're emancipated from their parents or they're, they're living life. They've, uh, they, they potentially are in their first job. They don't have a, a sound socioeconomic, they don't have sound socioeconomic stability. So I think that may play into it. I think the fact that if you're 26 years old and you go to, go to see a medical oncologist, you're going to see an adult oncologist who hasn't seen osteosarcoma very often and therefore should make the referral to a pediatric oncologist. They may end up sending you to an, uh, someone who thinks that uh, that they know osteosarcoma, and then they're just going to give you a, a cisplatin and doxorubicin, and they're not going to give you the methotrexate because they know methotrexate in a someone my age, I would have a very hard time with methotrexate. Someone your age, 
you're not a kid, but you can handle methotrexate, high dose methotrexate, you will bounce back from it. But there are probably potentially patients in the adult realm who don't get methotrexate in their treatment because they're afraid that, that the medical oncologist treating them is inexperienced just because they, they're, most of their patients are older. So they're, they're afraid to give them methotrexate. Um, and then there's a, a variety of other factors involved with it. But I think those are, those are big examples of why I think osteosarcoma patients anyways have a harder time. Okay, thank you. Hi, so um, can you tell us a little bit about the Leach Lab and how you use it for research and if there's any like ongoing treatments that they're using for the canine models that could translate to human models? Yeah, sure. Um, so the uh, right now, the, the Leach Lab, we're just doing what we've sort of discussed right here, but we have actual, actually coming up in the next month or two, several um, discussions that we're going to have with vet med leadership around how we can use samples from uh, canine patients in osteosarcoma to look at some new novel treatments. But right now we don't, we don't have that work in progress, but that is something that we'll, we'll be moving forward. We're just getting going on this with the, the bio, the uh, bioengineered uh, bone marrow. What are your thoughts on uh, open biopsy versus needle biopsy? It's a great question. Um, I, I, I think what really matters here is experience rather than technique. You'll have people make arguments on either side about um, uh, getting adequate tissue. Well, I can tell you as a surgeon, I can get as much tissue with a core needle, a true cut needle as I can with an open, and I might be able to get much more of an array. So if I, you know, again, I can sample the tumor multiple times in multiple sites with the true cut and get lots of it. That's as helpful to me as making an incision going down and taking out the same amount of tissue in one location, because I have much better sampling with a true cut than I do with just a single piece of tissue, even if it's a big piece of tissue from one area of the tumor, because the, the, the evolution and the heterogeneity of the tumor is so important. Again, there, there may, there, there is most likely when people develop osteosarcoma, there is a, a, an event that causes it to start to proliferate. But as it continues, certain cell lines become more aggressive and others don't. And that's why I get to the fact of, you know, again, if you get, take it, the, getting those tumor specimens at resection with the viable tumor, finding out what those clones are that have resisted the chemotherapy is so, is so critical. But back to your point, I think, again, there's arguments to be made on either side. What we really want is adequate sampling in terms of volume and adequate sampling in terms of mixture of tissue. Thank you. Hi, uh, I just had a question. Um, should patients have genetic testing uh, every time someone has a thoracotomy or do the tumors typically have the same gene? Um, I don't think they need to have genetic testing because the genetic testing is, is basically about um, the initial event that predisposed them to forming the, 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 the sarcoma or the tumor. But if they, I think what we really need to do, and I know Quad W is um, a big advocate for this too, is 
we need for anyone who's having a metastatectomy, whether it's through VATS, you know, video, um, video resect, minimally invasive resection or open, we really need to be getting those tissues to study. Um, because that is where the answers are going to lie. And we need a large number of them. Because again, I think everyone has um, experienced, uh, I know the providers have experienced patients who develop, a, uh, unfortunately, a chest full of metastases who get chemotherapy, and some of the metastases respond, and some don't, right? Which is telling us that not all of those metastases are the same. If one set of if one clump of tumors is shrinking while another's is growing, by definition, they have different biology. And so not all metastases are the same. And so if you, it, I would push patients to say, listen, I understand you're taking this out. What are you, are you making sure that that tissue gets to the right people to be able to study it? Because um, we need to unlock the answers by studying the metastases. Okay, thank you. I, I just have a follow-up to that. Um, I've run into roadblocks, let's say, with surgeons, you know, uh, patients with multiple lung metastasis, and they've had one or two thoracotomies or VATs or whatever. And then there's so much disease in there, there, there can't possibly be a reason to go into that lung to take one or two. But you're saying that there, there is a fight for this. There is a, there is a role. So how do, how do us as practitioners fight that fight for our patients? Well, that, that, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. I, 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 I applaud you for asking it. It's tough. First of all, as clinicians and scientists, every patient, every time, one needs to think about the interests of the patient we're caring for. That's the rule number one, everything downstream from that. The patient of tomorrow we care about, but not at the expense of the patient of today, right? So we've got to, we've got to have discussions with them. So it, I, I am not in any way trying to suggest that people should be having unnecessary surgery for the sake of research. But I, I am simply saying if, if patients are going to have thoracotomies or excuse me, just metastatectomies, whatever method they do, um, that those, those specimens be used to be studied um, and not be just, just, you know, confirm that they're osteosarcoma and they get destroyed. Does that yes. make sense what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, excellent answer. And by the way, we have a, a testing and research directory that we developed with Richard Gorlick and Katie Janeway and Corey Painter and Christina Iptoma, um, one of our osteosarcoma families um, really champion this whole testing and research directory. It tells you where you can send your tumor for either um, to inform your personal treatment plan or to inform research. And it's, it's, it's comprehensive. It's a remarkable document and it lives on our website. Um, before we have burning questions to ask, um, I have a um, special guest. So here's Lily. Oh my goodness. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Lily. Hi, Lily. <laughs> Hi. 
I feel like I've been like kind of absent from this world for a little bit. Um, I had my baby last year and things have been a little bit nuts since then, but they've been wonderful. I think about you all the time and, and, um, I'm just so glad that you're in, in a good place and you're doing wonderful things. She told me about Pippin Willow. Yeah, my little company. It's fun. Yeah, it's yeah, great. And I mom and it's just terrific. I think about you all the time too. Pretty grateful for the work you've done. <laughs> I like my leg. It works pretty nicely. Yeah, that's I hear you're running on it. Yeah, it gives me gives me a little palpitation to think about that, but I'll 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 I tattled on you, Lily, that you you ran part of the Miami Marathon for um, Osteo Warrior families and patients who are listening. Lily had osteosarcoma at age 13, um, survived, had a hell of a fight, like we all do, but really a hell of a fight and um, got married, has a baby, and started a company, and just, whoo, yay, Lily. Okay, we're pretty much out of time, but we do have burning questions. Let's go. Would you rather repeat high school or med school? Depends on what what my goal is. (laughs) But I mean, I loved my high school experience. It was a lot of fun. I don't know if I can say the same thing about med school. So I'd probably do high school again. Uh, What's another profession you'd like to attempt? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one because I'm, um, I really love what I do, but if um, I'm, I might have followed my pursuit of being a rock drummer. Uh, what has inspired you to become a researcher? You guys. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I went into medicine like many people um, because I care about people and want to make the world a better place by healing, trying to help people heal. Um, and um, realized that no matter how hard I studied and how hard I uh, uh, took care of patients with uh, good surgical care, that there were patients who were still suffering and or dying of their disease. And I wanted to help um, those patients. And that's why I said I got to, I, I have to do research as well. Okay, so want to finish up by saying that we have an RFP now open. It's our annual Outsmarting Osteosarcoma grant. It's our fifth year in a row. We're awarding $100,000 for osteosarcoma-specific research. We're able to do this with thanks to our MIB patient families through their family funds. Those family fund members and our scientific advisory board will meet virtually this year to to review and vote on the top three finalists. Those three finalists then present their proposals to an audience of peers and families who will vote to determine the winning project truly an all osteosarcoma community effort to make it better, to submit a proposal, better hurry. Um, The deadline is February 1st. You go to mibagents.org forward slash outsmarting dash osteosarcoma. Next week, we get to talk with Dr. Robbie Masner of Stanford University School of Medicine on unleashing the pediatric immune system against sarcoma and other solid tumors. Such a good idea. I cannot wait to hear more about that. Um, In the meantime, thanks everybody for joining us and thanks to our guest, Dr. Laura Randall for your work and your leadership towards better. Thank you to our panelists, Ryan, Matt and Amy. And thanks everybody for being here with us. We'll see you next week. Be sure and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can view our library of this and all Osteobytes topics and rockstar speakers. You can also listen to Osteobytes via podcast wherever you get your podcast.